0: Welcome back to uh, the Film Frequency Podcast, Season 2, Episode 5. Cin- Cinco? Is that it in, in Spanish? Yes, Cinco. Yeah. Cinco. <laughs> Scottish thing you say. It's Scottish. <laughs> do not hey,
1: It's Babe.
0: <laughs> it's Babe. Yeah, it's right. Babe. So, this week, because we've got an arguably uh, spy franchise that's launching its ninth film which is the fast and furious franchise i'm not even sure what this new one's called is it fast it's fast nine fast nine
1: has any of them been called fast something
0: i, I don't know fast they keep yeah, changing what they're called iteration I, that. I
1: actually think this one's called it's actually called Fast and the furious nine or f9 this f9 one. is what i've f9, seen yeah. oh like
0: the keypad yeah like f9 <laughs>
1: okay. they're just they're like, just do
0: you know what you would be i know i'm going on a tangent but a great quiz question should be. Can you name all the Fast and Furious films?
1: It's a hard. It's hard. That's quite a hard question. It is quite hard.
0: Right? But anyway, back on to this week's um, podcast. We're not going to look at Fast and Furious or F whatever. Um, we're going to look at uh, three very popular spy, uh, spy franchises, possibly the three most popular, most successful there's ever been, and that is the James Bond franchise, the Jason Bourne franchise, and the Mission Impossible franchise. And we're going to dive deep into all three of them and then um, pick our favourites and give our reasons for why we think it's the best. Um, Because we we all know, um, we all know what the best is here, let's be honest. Um, And I will reassure you on that once the the time comes. So to start off with, uh, we're gonna look at the James Bond franchise. It is the longest running of all these franchises. Um, It started in 1962 which is so long ago. Um, I think that must be the longest-running franchise of all time, and it has spanned the whole way up to present day, still going very strong with the, uh, Daniel Craig as the titular character. And we're just about to hit Bond number twenty-five, I believe, and that's probably going to be the last Daniel Craig Bond. So, been going for how many years is that? Sixty odd years. So, um...
2: no, it's nearly it's nearly seventy years old like this franchise has been going if we don't count the book so the book originally was the character was created by ian fleming in 1953 with casino royale being the first book if you don't count that if you just count the cinematic bond this is next year will be seven decades old which is unbelievable but it's still going on that one
0: that is true that is mad like um given that most franchises even struggle to make it past the first sequel and this is this has had 25 or 24 sequels essentially. Which is crazy. And arguably it's going stronger than it ever has before. Um so to begin with, we'll take it the whole way back to the start and um and work it up to present day. So the very first James Bond was the iconic Scottish actor Sean Connery, um, who starred in Doctor No in 1962. Um the synopsis for this film was that obviously James Bond is a 007 agent, a special uh, British uh, Secret Service agent, and he goes to Jamaica to investigate the death of a British intelligence chief. There he meets Honey Rider, the first Bond girl, uh, which, who, who was played by Ursula Andress. Um, and then he also discovers while he's there in Jamaica that there's an existence of an evil organization known as Spectre, which of course, uh, we got a bit more on that um, in the last Bond film. Um, has
1: anyone seen this film? Doctor No? Yeah, according to my um, my ratings on IMDb, I have seen it and I give it 6 out of 10. 3 stars out of 5 on Letterboxd. So, not the, not the most strong start to the franchise, but a, a start nonetheless. However, looking at Letterboxd, there seems to be a few of these that I haven't rated all the way through the year. So I've definitely seen, I think I've seen more than I haven't seen in the Bond franchise. But yeah, not a popular start.
0: Ross, have you seen Doctor No? I think that you were going to talk about yeah, it there. No,
2: absolutely. Like I've seen, oh, I've seen all of them. Um, I like. It's weird. I only I only saw Doctor No actually not that long ago. So I guess the one thing with these movies, and I guess probably most people's introduction to these movies, certainly people who live in the UK, um, was that ITV for a very long time, and they still might do it. They had this sort of which is a TV channel in the UK. They had like this block where they would always, um, usually sort of a Saturday night, where they would have like different movies that would go on. And they always had a period of the year where they would have the Bond franchise um, that would go on. And that was probably my introduction to the character. I don't think this was the first one I've seen, but um, yeah, like a very, I love this franchise. And certainly, Dr. No exemplifies sort of classic Bond. It's your Sean Connery sort of style. Um, he each of them I think and I guess as we go on we'll sort of talk more about this, but each of them has their own particular aesthetic and their style of doing things. So, like I mean Sean Connery, it's I guess it's the it's more maybe sort of serious. Um, but then you get to like Roger Roger Moore and it's just incredibly campy. Then you go on to like Timothy Dalton again, very very serious and hardline. Pierce Brosnan back into the camp a bit more and Daniel Craig obviously incredibly serious so um I heard this...
0: that uh, Sean Connery's, I haven't watched a Sean Connery Bond film but I feel like he, w- you know, having watched other Sean Connery films I was like yeah he would be perfect for Bond I did read that he was a lot more brutal and kind of hands on and more yeah. physical and then they said that Daniel Craig was the one to kind of re-establish that, I've seen a, a few Pierce Brosnan ones and I can see that He's not as physical and kind of brunt force-type Bond. yeah uh, Timothy, that Dal- true?
2: Timothy Dalton is actually a, a, his sort of two. So Living Daylights and Licence to Kill, they're a bit more gritty. I think one of them's a 15. I think it's the only one in the franchise, which is like a 15, really. Um, and it's pretty... like They're an awful lot grittier and more hardcore. Um, I guess my favourite thing about this franchise is that there's so much variety that you can get from it there's um there's a little bit of something i think for most people in here i wouldn't say everyone and we'll come on to that whenever we come on to some of the problems with the franchise but i think there's an awful lot um of variety that if you don't like one particular thing you can get find it better somewhere else
0: i mean i suppose you'd expect with 25 films uh in your back catalog you would get some variety not mean to burn there, but we'll get into that further down the line um, with its variety and and its problems, I guess. Um, so yeah, uh, James Bond. The films are based on books created by Ian Fleming. So Ian Fleming, um, I believe, he uh, wrote twelve novels for James Bond as well as two short stories. And apparently, he when he watched the first one, Doctor No, he described the film as dreadful, simply dreadful. So he was not a fan of how James Bond was pictured um, and portrayed in, in the very first film, uh, which I'm sure the, the, who are the guys who, the production studio probably tried to drown that comment out so that no one heard it, um, because that's the last thing you want is is the author of your main character bad-mouthing it.
1: A lot of the time that that happens with authors where they don't really like their adaptations of the work, Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think it's a lot of authors are very keep a lot of stuff close to your chest. You know, I think if you're an author and you're going to let your work be ad- ad- adapted, you should should be able to let that go. Um, you know, I think. also quite interestingly, so this James Bond, Doctor No came out a year before uh, Doctor Who, and um, is they are these the only two kind of franchises that have? the character is like played by someone else because i feel like that's something it's quite a smart idea because you know you're sean connery obviously got to an age where he couldn't play him anymore and then they, you know was that always an idea where they were always just going to bring in new characters to play james bond like what do you think about that like
0: that's a good question actually um i obviously sean connery so basically they, they start off with dr no and then they made like five films back to back with Sean Connery. And when I mean back to back, it sounds like it was actual back to back because they pumped out a James Bond film every year up until, I think, yeah, 19, until
2: 1967, I
0: think. With You Only Live Twice, which is crazy to get a turnaround of films in that quick space of time. You just wouldn't get it these days unless they intended for it to be five or six films. I think also production budgets these days are so much bigger. Films are bigger. Blockbusters are bigger. So I think that has something to say about it. But then they jumped to George Lazenby as um, the Bond, Mm -hmm. and then they jumped back to Sean Connery. Does anyone know why that is?
1: I didn't know that. There Um, was,
2: um, I I believe there was a dispute. Um, Connery had a dispute with the, I think there was a particular movie that he wanted to make, That he sort of was I think, I have a funny feeling he asked for too much money, I'm not 100% sure but um, he definitely fell out with the people who were making the movies and then I think they offered, whenever they realised that On Her Majesty's Secret Service which is the one that George Lazenby did wasn't as, I don't think it was as commercially successful as the others then they went back and sort of offered him the money I guess that he was planning, to that he wanted um and that's why i think i think that's how you got back
0: i see with on her Majesty's secret service the george Lazenby one um that it is the one that's closest to ian fleming's novel and it's almost more like a drama than any other film in the franchise it's
2: really really good it's one that gets often overlooked by an awful lot of people because it's like i mean everybody has a favorite bond and everybody has a favorite bond movie and i think a lot of people overlook certainly George Lazenby, but also that movie. And it's arguably, I would say, one of the most coherent sort of narratives throughout. And it's probably one of the best. Um, it's, it, if you're not, you know, it's not as heavy with the gadgets and the action set pieces and stuff as maybe some of the other iterations would be. But I still think it's a very solid sort of movie. And I think it holds up an awful lot better than an awful lot of these other movies probably would nowadays
0: it's uh it's ranked number seven on the rotten tomatoes um ranking of all the bond films mm. and actually the original dr no is ranked number three so yeah they had a few strong ones clearly at the start i'll I'll need to go back and actually uh watch some of the earlier things uh earlier bond films
1: i like the way they brought in this whole idea of specter and you know obviously that was in the earlier films right uh, mm-hmm. and they've kind of brought back old villains and i don't know if this is a spoiler but i think there's there's talk that the Safin character is Doctor No, possibly. Um, the Rami Malik's character in the new Bond. Oh, okay. I do believe it's the similar way they did with um. Christoph, Christoph Waltz. Waltz's guy. Waltz yeah. They
2: did as um, Bluefield,
1: yeah. Or he had a different name, and then you know it turns out to be. They do, they do that a lot on things these days? Um, turns out to be a character like I think it was uh, Zendaya in Spider Man. Is Mary Jane, yeah, she but Andrew, she like a Mary different Jane name. Walker. Silly. Silly things like that. But yeah, that'd be pretty cool if they brought back like the original uh, Bond villain for this one. And especially no one better than Mr. Rami Malek to play him. Yeah.
0: Now, with doing that, um, I, I don't have a problem with it if it's done well. Um, however, the way they did it in Spectre, I felt very tacked on. There was a lot of problems I had with Spectre. But bringing, you know, it just seemed like, oh, we're going to do this name recognition thing. And I've seen it done in Star Trek Into Darkness. Where uh, it, it was calm?
2: what it was, yeah, it was calm, it was played. And by everyone Ed could Ed predict it was,
0: it was better than Cumberbatch. You know, that that was part of one of the major flaws with that film, I found. Um And I, I feel like if you're going to do it, it has to be tastefully and it has to make sense. And it just felt like the Blofeld thing, they just tapped I, on to Crystal's Walls.
2: It's the problem nowadays with movies and the amount of extra sort of focus and the fandom and the sort of the media the landscape that we live in nowadays where you can't like there's all these pictures from sets and all these sort of people that just sort of almost want to spoil things for themselves. Um whereas back in the day like the one that I would always sort of say is a very good um sort of indicator of this is whenever um seven the psychological thriller seven came out in the late nineties um Kevin, no, I guess it's not really a well. It's maybe a spoiler, but it's an old enough movie now. Kevin Spacey in that movie plays the villain, like the lead villain. Now he actually isn't in any, wasn't in any of the material for the movie at all. And promotion. He also wasn't in the opening credits, even though Brad Pitt and Morgan Freeman both were, and he deliberately asked for that. Now, I say what you will, obviously, about Kevin Spacey and the monster that he turned out to actually be, like, that is, I thought, was very cleverly done, because if you see someone who is a high profile name in one of these things, it makes it very difficult to pull off that bait and switch of, oh, you thought they were, and especially when it's a recognized franchise like this, that it's, oh, no, they're actually just some random or they're not, or they're this really big character, even though we've told you they were no one. Do you know what I mean? It's like it's very difficult to pull that off.
0: It is, yeah. Um, especially when everyone knows, if it's from a founded franchise, you know who the biggest villains are. So you've got a very small handful to work within. And then, of course, everyone guesses online. As you said, in today's social media world, where set uh, footage is leaked all the time, very hmm. hard to manage to cover up, especially you were saying about like covering up a major actor who's a major hmm. character in a in a blockbuster or in a film at all would be very hard to do even if you detach them from like credits and uh, kind of any uh recognition like any uh notes on the film like one that i think was done quite well um is interstellar when matt damon well i think it was done well where matt damon just shows up halfway through i mean again i don't know some people would argue and I think there is an argument to be had that it kind of throws you out of the film when he just shows up out of nowhere but that was certainly where they managed to keep it concealed keep it covered and then no one had a clue it was happening until mm. they saw the film
2: but with regards to these movies like how many have you seen a lot of them have you seen all of them like what's your own history with the franchise
0: uh cory I think seen more than I have I have not seen many I started them I think when I was a kid, the first one I ever got to see parts of was uh, Pierce Brosnan's Die Another Day. And when I was, I was probably the right age for that type of film because I remember being like, yeah, I, I quite enjoy this. I never watched, I think, from start to finish with that film. It's always been bits and pieces on TV. And then Daniel Craig came in, and that's where I've started. Daniel Craig is my Bond at the end of the day. I haven't really watched much of I've watched golden literally yesterday and i've watched die another day of pierce Brosnan, and then all the daniel craig films so mm. i don't have a good backstory to the the original films or the, the first lot
1: mark you sound you sound like a true like gen z like you've only like oh i don't know any of these movies i only know like the, the latest one if you know what i mean <laughs> <laughs> i know i'm still gonna slate
0: this franchise <laughs> well yeah, I yeah. Did, well
1: if, i think i mean i'm not sure you have legs to stand on if you haven't seen a lot of them but i will I know, say I um so I don't know I I don't know a bigger James Bond fan than my dad. So I was raised on these films. This was my first introduction to spy movies. The, this idea of you know gadgets and uh, everything that comes with the James Bond film. Um, looking down, like I've seen a lot of these films before I even started reviewing films. So I've got about. 10 of them rated on Letterboxd but I know that I've seen probably the vast majority now just looking at them. Um, mm. the, the George Lazenby ones I think they're ones I might have given a miss, miss but I think I've seen almost if not all of the Sean Connery ones. Uh, my highest rated is Skyfall at the minute and Goldfinger is my second highest rated interestingly and the gold okay. that I, um, all Sean Connery ones I was a big fan of as well a somewhat of a fan of as well. Um. Interesting.
0: Um, mine would be Casino Royale is my favourite, um, and do you know, I still find so I, I the Daniel Craig ones I certainly prefer to the Pierce Brosnan ones. I was saying this to Corey yesterday. I feel like the older ones don't have an aged well. Um, I mean, even I I re I watched GoldenEye because I was told it was one of the best. Um, Bond films, and it was... Uh, most people would agree it's the best Pierce Brosnan one. Um. And even watching it, it was so jarring. It felt... I couldn't believe it came out in 1995. It felt like a 1975 type film. Um, it just... It, it felt so different from the Bond that I know with Daniel Craig. And, oh, okay, you can have a different type of Bond, but it felt... It also felt very dated. Obviously, there's the whole... I think one of the big things that made it feel dead was the whole persona of who Bond is, which is this kind of, like, secret agent, very cocky, very suave, and um, a a complete womanizer, which doesn't help in today's era. Um, And it comes across very uncomfortable and um, kind of throws you out of the film. It doesn't come across, like, you know, uh, I mean, there was nothing where you go, oh, that's very inappropriate, Bond. But at the same time, it, it comes across almost like, what's the word? Uh, sleazy. Comes across yeah, sleazy. Um, rather yeah. than like mature think, and confident. I think there's,
2: there's definitely a very, there's a line which I think is, as we've progressed throughout, that was once maybe considered charming is now definitely, you're right, like sleazy and sort of, I think that's my biggest problem with this franchise as a whole is the fact that, it, like you're right, it hasn't, A lot of aspects of him in particular his character haven't aged well um like the way the the layers of misogyny that sort of exist the whole way through the um i guess completely like very sort of it is always a white man that plays this role and i know an awful lot of people um like it like that and like see it but that's Something which I don't think is indicative of the changing of the times.
0: But yeah, it was other things. The things that didn't age badly when I watched GoldenEye were M, played by Judy Dench. Like, her scenes were great yeah. still. They were really, really good. But again, um, that's,
2: that's progression because that character was always traditionally an old man in a suit. Yeah. Before she, I think they changed her. And she her did came, such a good job
0: with that role. The, the change for
2: her team during, I think it was GoldenEye. It was definitely one of the.
0: um it was GoldenEye when she was introduced. Yeah. yeah. Also, I, just some of the cliche things, like putting Bond in scenarios, and then it's like, right, do you want to kill Bond? Because if you're wanting to kill Bond, why don't you just do, you know grab your gun and shoot Twice. him in the head? Why put him in these ludicrous scenarios where there is a chance of him escaping? Um, I mean, like right. Those sort of things... We're...
2: We're talking about ludicrous scenarios, and yet your franchise of choice is Mission Impossible. Like, (laughs) I think with these movies, you have to suspend disbelief. I also think, like, I wouldn't call, when it comes to Bond, I wouldn't call them cliches, I would call them tropes, because they come from Bond. It's like you wouldn't turn around and say that Star Wars keeps banging on about the Force or Jedi or something, because it's part of the mythology and the universe. I think him with his weird gadgets and him with the action set pieces is part and parcel of that and being able to constantly innovate and provide new and interesting things. That's what people go to these movies for. Um, And they're able to, Mm -hmm. and they're getting better with the actual story, the stories. Lines have progressed and become more interesting and more as time has went on. But at the end of the day, like most people, the reason this is the fourth highest grossing film franchise of all time, is because of those action set pieces.
0: I will give you like, they still make more money than the Jason Bourne or Mission Impossible films. Like, the last one that came out made almost a billion dollars. Skyfall made a billion. They make big, big money, and it's clearly
2: a community there is ingrained. I just think there's something nice about the fact that, like, coming from the British Isles, like, this is our thing. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. yes, Hollywood dominates the box office time after time after time. James Bond is, like, that one bastion of, like, british cinema that has held out throughout all of it do you know what i mean like and i again there's problems with it there's lots of problems with it but it's still ours it's not it's not and the americanized version of things which i is one of the main reasons i would sort of i wouldn't enjoy the porn or the it's nice to sort of hear people talk about things and i'm not saying they're talking about things that are involved in my life but it's there's a, bit,
0: you, there's a bit, there's a bit, there's a pride, a
2: bit more relatability to it than hearing people talk about stopping <laughs> off at the gas station and doing I mean that sort of thing.
0: <laughs> Ross relating to Bond. Oh yeah, yeah. I uh, killed three secret agents at the weekend and then slept with two, uh, 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 what it, A-lister models. What was your thought on that? That last point, Corey. What was your thought about? Because I really want to ask you what you thought about the tropes and is it. Uh is it good to have the troops in there or do they age badly or do they do you think it's fine? Do you think it's
1: I think it's the the character James Bond has not aged well. I however think they've done really well with the Daniel Craig one where it's kind of brought him back to his like bare bones somewhat. Mm. And they still kept in a lot of those things where you know we have the big thing, him having a different woman each um film you know, I, I like that they've kept uh, less sedu in this one because it adds a bit of weight. I do think that's one of my biggest issues. Even when uh, Eva Green's character died, it didn't affect me at all because I was like, the next film we we'll have a new girl and I don't really know him that much, you know. That's a big issue I have with the character and that's one thing I don't relate to very well. Anyway, moving on. Mark, do you want to talk about Mission Impossible? Try and get-
0: um. So, Mission Impossible. A lot of people will know already was based on a TV show, uh, an American TV show that I don't think it was ever broadcast here in the UK um, and it ended in the 90s and it chronicles the missions of a small team of secret government agents known as the Impossible Missions Force and then the first mission, they decided to adapt it into a film and the first film is meant to be leading on I think about six years after the end of the TV show but they weren't, I don't think they brought back characters from the original but a lot of the tropes, um, they continued on to the films. And um, just like, was it um, On Her Her Majesty's Secret Service was the most like uh, the books. I believe the first Mission Impossible was the most like the TV show. And of course, uh, the titular role is Ethan Hunt played by none other than Tom Cruise. Um, the series has made over $3.5 billion so far at the box office, which makes it the 16th highest-grossing film franchise of all time. Um, to be fair, Bond has almost doubled that already, but it has far more films, um, and it's now been running for about 25 years. So in 1996, Mission Impossible, the first film, came out, um, and the director was Brian De Palma. So he was the guy who directed Untouchables, Scarface, and um, Stephen King's Carrie. Carrie, is it? Carrie, Carrie? Um, um. And it stars Tom Cruise, and then uh, it also has Vin Rames, who's been a recurring uh, sidekick ever since the first one. Um, John Voight was the antagonist in the film, and it basically is about um, this group of IMF agents, impossible, Mission Impossible agents, are betrayed and killed in a mission. Ethan must hunt down a mole within the agency. And uh, so, a lot of this wasn't action-heavy like the newest Mission Impossible films are. It was more of a, more of a suspenseful drama, um, and it was more contained, and it was more to do with espionage um, and crossing one another within this this team of spies, rather than like set piece, set piece. Uh, we need to stop a bomb going off to end the world. Um, But at the same time, they still introduce the classic things like the music, which I think came from the TV show, the mask gimmick about like pulling off these masks. I don't know what your thoughts are on that, but um, most of the time I think they use it in a good way. And then obviously the self-destructing mission tape when uh, Ethan Hunt gets given his mission. Um, What did you think about uh, Mission Impossible in general and the first one?
1: Uh, So my Mission Impossible scores... Uh, my ratings have got better as the years went on. Um, Mission Impossible one, two, and three are all rated six out of ten for me. So it's, six for me is an okay film. I enjoyed it. It wasn't very memorable for me. Um, but I, you know, I enjoyed what went on. As it went on, Ghost Protocol. It was a seven. Uh, Rogue Nation was back to a six, actually. And then Mission Possible Fallout, the latest one, I rated a nine out of 10. I really, really enjoyed the last one. Um, I really liked Henry Cavill's character introducing it, Rebecca Ferguson's cool. Um, the way they brought back, is it Ving Rhames and Simon Pegg having those kind of recurring characters in the films? Really liked that yeah. they kind of added a comedic uh, um, edge to it. Also, I'm very highly respect- respectful of the way Tom Cruise does his own stunts in these movies. For me, that's uh, that's something that really um, really pushes it above the bar. And seeing some of the behind the scenes videos of what he did in terms of hanging out of helicopters, the way he does a lot of these stunts, like I think it was, is it in Rogue Nation where he's, he's running and he, broke his ankle or something, and he just continued shooting the scene in one of these films. He, you know, there's little... Tri- tri- the trivia behind the Mission Impossible films is always fantastic, and I'm sure you know a few that I don't, Mark, but, um, yeah, really huge fan of the movies, um, definitely in the later years, and I'm very excited to see what they do next.
0: Yeah, I mean, obviously, Ethan Hunt doing his own stunts, that's certainly become a staple of the franchise since about Mission Impossible 4, when Brad Bird took over, and... Um, for me, it has also improved in my ratings the whole way through. Um, mission, mission Impossible 1, I can't talk tonight. Um, I, I gave a 7 out of 10. It's my weakest out of the lot. Mm. And then I think from there on in, it's like it's the whole way up, and then the latest one um, is a 9 out of 10, so it has been certainly on an excellent trajectory, to think that the sixth one is the best in the franchise is pretty good, and the fact that there is no dud one in there, I think that's another big, big factor with the Mission Impossible films, you can rely on getting a good film, or at least a half-decent one out of each and every one. Um, Mission Impossible 2, I remember, was directed by John Woo, the guy who did Face Off, so it was very, that was the first time loads of action was brought into it, very like john woo styled, like doves and explosions and stylishness with the like you got to put on your sunglasses if you're going to have a, a fight um even if it's indoors and things um and it's a bit generic the plot but i still really enjoyed it i remember the part where tom cruise is hanging off a cliff i think he did that himself so maybe that was the start of him doing like ridiculous stunts and then mission impossible 3 jj abrams came in big big gap between mission possible 2 and 3 and this time you got to see behind the scenes on his personal life. That's something that I think both Bond and Jason Bourne miss a little bit, is you don't get much of a backstory. Some Bonds, that's why I, Casino Royale is probably my favourite, because you build that relationship up with um, uh, with a female character um, and his love interest. And then, of course, you have Philip Seymour Hoffman as the villain in Mission Impossible 3, which I think is maybe the best villain there's been. Um... Which one of these has you? Have you seen Ross? I've only
2: seen. I've seen. I. I I have a funny feeling. I've seen more than this. I've seen Mission Impossible three because I just remember Philip Seymour Hoffman talking about a rabbit's foot in a plane. Um, that was like it was like where's the rabbit's foot? That's like that's all I remember from it. I also watched. I think it's the. Is it the fourth one where they're like, he falls down like the skyscraper in Dubai, or is that like that's so like I. I can't really sort of comment too much in the franchise. I haven't I don't have an awful lot of experience with it. Like yeah, the music's iconic and all the rest of it, but um it's yeah, I don't want to like slag it off too much without ever actually having properly sat down and viewed it. The only thing is that I will say, I think in the point of my favor when it comes to Bond over this, is like you said, Tom Cruise Tom Cruise is insane. Like absolutely mental as a man. He's just I like I Respect the hell out of the fact that he does his own stunts, but at the same time, I also worry about his mental health that he's doing all that sort of stuff. Like, how anyone thinks that's like normal at his age is crazy. Um, but the simple fact of the matter is, there will come a day and he won't like it himself, but there will come a day whenever he won't be able to do it anymore, and the franchise will die whenever he goes. I can't see them bringing somebody else in to sort of pick it up because he's so quintessential in this movie. Whereas, I would say the thing with Bond is that they've had that inbuilt thing where every so many movies they switch out and up somebody new in. So I think like, I can't see a Mission Impossible without uh, Tom Cruise, but I can see a
0: James Bond without Daniel Craig or without X, Y, I would disagree. I think they could if James Bond has done it, and he's done it numerous times, I think you could do the same here. Not I, think, as much as...
2: I think, don't get me wrong, I think they'll try it, because it makes yeah. money, and they know it makes money.
0: I just yeah. don't think they'll be successful with it. I also think that um, years ago, um, uh, the audience what the audience craved out of blockbusters has changed. So back then, it was fine about not having any continuity. Whereas we are in a very continuity heavy uh, a few decades, I suppose. Um, I mean, you can just look at Marvel. Marvel does it the best, and of course they're the top, top, uh, top man or the top, top gun of uh, of top dog. That's the one. top gun (laughs) another
2: Uh, the top
0: dog um i don't know what i'm talking about the top uh top dog when it comes to you know box office and popularity so i think and they've started to realize that with the mission impossible films they're like let's interweave characters bring them back i mean in the last one they had ethan hawks or ethan hunt's um love interest julia who's played by michelle monaghan the last time she had a big role was in Mission Impossible 3 and there's a, like a little bit of a hint as to her still being on the sidelines in the 4 but they brought her back as a proper side character in 6 and I thought that, I, I love that sort of stuff when they bring back and go, oh yeah, you know, Mission Impossible 3 was the same character as he was in 4 or 5 so you can't just associate all these other people just bring in a, a complete new slate of people as Corey was saying, you're like, who cares if someone dies because then you're going to be replaced by someone the the next, uh, next film. Um...
2: I don't, well, I, I mean, I don't agree with that. Like, I think there's, yes, overall that happens an awful lot in those movies, but there's definitely characters, like you were saying, about how Eva Green dies in the first Casino Royale, in Casino Royale, but yet she, they talk about her and she has a running thread throughout at least the next movie and the movies after that. Like, she repeatedly comes up in the same way whenever he got married to Diana Riggs in... Um, uh, Under Majesty's Secret Service that was brought up and referenced at multiple different points there are characters that pop up again and again and again throughout those movies um Felix Leiter all these sorts of things, there are a bunch yeah. of I, it's not, yes I, I understand there's the sort of disposable eye candy type thing and the problems with that but there is an awful lot more characterisation and I think you're
0: giving incredible and villains villains they're very bad for as well and it's not just bond it's mission impossible as well mission impossible's always had weak villains i would say probably the one with um philip seymour hoffman was probably the best but they've had weak villains and i think part of it which again marvel's done really well with thanos if you give the time to build up your villain and for people to invest in your villain then they become a better villain and i think to to it means, if you were going to try and do this all in one film, it also it almost means sidelining your hero. And it's very hard to get that balance right. There's few films that do it. Probably The Dark Knight did it quite well. But I think you need maybe multiple films to build up a proper adversary. And therefore, I think moving forward, Mission Impossible's got 7 and 8 coming up with Christopher McQuarrie again, the guy who did 6 and 5. And I think they should keep the same villain for these next two. These next two are being film back to back or that was the plan before covid and i think I, I think that's a great strategy i feel like they're going to try and interweave one story into two films which i mm. think if you do that and you have your characters and your villain that you maybe build up over more than one um i think you could end up with a, a really good punch at the end of that you know mission impossible mm. eight okay um on to uh jason bourne
1: yeah, so Jason Bourne films, um, based on books by Robert Ludlum. So there's three main books in the, the proper, well, we'll call it the proper series, uh, the Bourne series. And it's basically this guy, who we come to know as Jason Bourne, he's picked up on a fishing boat, bullet ridden and suffering from amnesia. And then he kind of needs to try, he goes to this bank and finds out that he's got all these different passports. And he's got a gun, he's not quite sure. And then slowly through the first half of the first movie, we start to see that he can do... All the things that most spies can do and more, you know, he can speak several languages, he can fight, he can uh, do all sorts. He's able to, I think there's one bit where he's in a cafe and he's like, he says to uh, Marie, this other character, that um, he's looking at the exits and he knows what weight some guy is and he knows if someone can throw a punch in the other place. So yeah, it was a really interesting start to this uh, franchise where you've kind of got this spy who doesn't really know he's a spy. It's probably the first time I've ever seen, most of the times some spy movies where they're not a spy beforehand and they come to become spies, like things like Kingsman of the likes mm. um, where they grow into the role, whereas this is an interesting take that he has been a spy, but he no longer knows that he's a spy. Um, so anyone who knows the franchise, there's this uh, the whole background organisation, Treadstone, so they're the kind of somewhat villains of the, of the series. I don't want to give too much away if anyone hasn't seen these movies, but um, yeah, the three movies kind of take you on the journey to tell you Jason Bourne's story um, and uh, where it goes so the first one was directed by Doug Lyman, um, the second and third were Paul Greengrass so Paul Greengrass really kind of took this franchise into his own, Um, a lot of people know, about. he does everything handheld, he has thousands upon thousands of edits in his movies so they're very quick paced Um, the shaky cam he he invented the shaky cam so yeah I I actually don't think Paul Greengrass I think he still does make films, but the way the editing are and some of the second and third one, I don't think we'd go down too well today. It's a wee bit too fast-paced. Um, I think if we were to see any more of these movies, maybe someone else would do them. But, of course, there has been, there was a spin-off of Jeremy Renner, um, The Bourne Supreme, Legacy, Bourne Legacy. Mm-hmm. And also there was a fourth one, Jason Bourne in 2016, which uh, a lot of people thought that this was the poorest of the lot, um, just because First of the kind of took place after the main story had kind of finished um and yeah uh, so mark you've seen all of these and ross you've seen ross has seen the the jeremy renner one now
2: I've seen the Jeremy Renner. I yeah. I, I and even then I what, can't. What really a poor remember. way
0: to enter this franchise, Ross. What I a think, very I think, poor I way think to enter. I have
2: it. a funny feeling I've saw like bits and pieces of the third one as well, which obviously out of context made absolutely no sense to me
0: whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, actually watching the Jeremy Renner one, Born Legacy, isn't that what it was? Yeah. Yeah. Um yeah. it maybe could work quite well as like a prequel to the, the Jason Bourne um films because they talk about they make reference to who Jason Bourne is and then I'd need to watch Born Legacy again, but I think it could actually work quite well as a prequel. They talk about who these group are, Treadstone, they talk about Jeremy Renner's another another spy in a similar situation to Bourne. I think he also has amnesia, does he? I
1: think so, yeah. I think so.
0: So yeah, I think that could actually work maybe as a per-prequel, if that makes sense. But I think you could then lead into the, the Bourne trilogy from there. And forget about the fourth one, just forget mm. about it.
1: Yeah so the original three um, were original novels by Ludlum, and they were the only three of his born films and as you, uh, Mark, did some brilliant notes for this podcast, uh, the series was then taken over after Ludlum's death by Eric Lustbader and he has written 12, he's written 11 of these novels and the last one was abandoned it says on, on Wikipedia and um, so you can definitely see where the studio was trying to go with I mean the first of his novels was the born legacy so the studio probably mm. thought here we go franchise city here's yeah, another 12 we got, films coming yeah, up this is going to be jump like, people's through and you know what if it born legacy had it done really well he probably would have seen the born betrayal the born sanction <laughs> the names are fantastic they're all like proper like spy words <laughs> dominion <laughs> imper- how many films are going to be called <laughs> dominion imperative <laughs> <laughs> the Bourne, oh god spy words we need to be spy dictionary of just spy words um but yeah as Mark, I think we mentioned briefly before, um, the thing I love about the Bourne films is that he doesn't know he's a spy, so he doesn't have all this like confidence that James Bond and uh, Ethan Hunt do, where they're kind of like, think they're cool guys. Like um, Whereas, and Matt Damon's really great at playing that kind of character, where he, he doesn't quite know his ability. It's similar to what mm-hmm. we were sp- speaking about in uh, Good Will Hunting, where he didn't quite realise how... You know, what you're capable of um, and it yeah as Mark you m- mentioned in the notes you weren't very you thought it was quite underwhelming when they reveal his past in the third film
0: yeah so I agree with you that the best bit about this franchise or the one that I certainly stands it out from the other ones is he doesn't know who his past is mm. so you the whole three films he's trying to work out what his past was, where he came from, is his name even Jason Bourne? Mm. And um, you want to find out as much as he does. Like, you're very, very invested in it as well. You're mm. like as frustrated as Jason Bourne is. And I think that helps an awful lot for you to keep going. You want to see what the next, you know, if the next stop he gets to will help him find out a bit more about his past. And then in the Bourne Ultimatum, um, I, everyone kind of knew this as the final part in the trilogy and final chapter until they made the fourth. Um, and yeah, the reveal to me wasn't very good. I thought they could have had a far bigger reveal, especially since you had three films basically uh, resting on this reveal. I think you needed you needed something to be able to pull the rug on you know from under the audience kind of thing, and yeah. it was kind of like yes. I mean, I'll not spoil it for people, but it was kind of you could have almost predicted what was going to be said.
1: Mm. I do think uh, one of the the poor things about this franchise is that it doesn't really have, as we were talking about, a very um, solid villain. You don't really have, a lot of the time it's like Hitmen that come after Jason Bourne, which he ultimately takes care of. Um, It's definitely the way in the first film. Carl Urban. Yeah, you do have, of course, the the Treadstone guys, it's like the CIA kind of overseers if you will, but it could have definitely maybe if they had have had another Treadstone agent who was like, like horrible and was like murdering people all across the globe someone really horrible you know you need a really good villain in there whereas nobody was really that awful i Uh, think
0: you know brian cox was a great one he Hmm. was in i think he was in the first one and then definitely in born supremacy wasn't he Yeah. yeah and i mean if anyone watches uh succession he's on hbo succession and he plays the godfather of that business basically and he's he's a horrible person in that as well he plays that really well like the horrible uh, douchebag character but um also another thing that works really well with this franchise it's not the end of the world type villains where they're trying to blow up the world or i don't know knock out the entire electricity grid of the north america or something cataclysmic if that makes sense it hmm. is simply an agency trying to cover up their mistakes and It's a lot more realistic. realistic. It is a lot more realistic. And I I think that also works an awful lot. And I did like, I thought Brian Cox, they should have kept him as the main villain. So they kind of built him up. And then supremacy, something happens and they don't use him in the third one. And I think they should have kept him going because then who takes over from him is this uh, Pam character by Joan Allen. And she's good in it, but she's a lot more sympathetic. And then therefore, as you said, Corey, you lose your villain really because she's not really a villain at all. Um, also side characters I think are slightly weak in this as well in the mm-hmm. films. Styles.
1: Um what do you got Franca is it Franca Potente as Marie in the first one of course something awful happens to her in the start of the second one. Um I think she would have been someone to kind of continue on. She'd be you know quite an interesting uh, love interest for Bourne but obviously she doesn't make it that far. Yeah definitely things like that killing off characters especially when you know it's going to be a trilogy. It's really bad to kill off main characters at the start of the second one and at the end of the second one. It really doesn't help that um, through game. The narrative, yeah. One -hmm. thing about Jason Bourne, 2016, the the last one. Of course, a lot of people didn't like this, but when I saw this film and I saw Alicia Vikander was in it, I, in my little film studies mind, was like, right, they're going to... at least she's going to be like pass on the mantle to her character and she's got, maybe she could be like a sister or something because he's obviously got amnesia so he could possibly forget something but her character was just like another CIA agent, agent in it and it wasn't that memorable um, I thought that would have been kind of cool if you wanted to continue it on or even, even if they weren't going to continue it on you could almost hint to it and it would be quite a nice little ending if you knew that someone else was going to take on the Franchise, similar the way, did, yeah, the way they did at the end of Dark Knight Rises, where you had, um Joseph Gordon-Levitt, you you knew he was going to be Nightwing, I presume, but they didn't have to mm. show it, you know, it was just accepted as part of a l- the. Canon. A little nod, yeah. yeah,
0: like, it it is definitely weakened the franchise to have, that legacy put in, and then obviously mm. this born, I mean, the born Jason Bourne seemed like such a like money grabbing scenario, and yeah. it it just it leaves a bad taste in the overall franchise uh just the overall legacy of the franchise. But you can also see why they do it. The studios can't help themselves but make another one that's just generic. Because if you look at the box office for these films, Identity made 215 million, then Supremacy made 290 million, then Ultimatum made 444 million, Legacy fell back again with 276 million, and then Jason Bourne, which was arguably maybe the weakest out of the lot, made almost the most with 415 million. Mm. And I think a lot of that's... They realised they were riding high on this franchise. People liked that. And on top of the fact that Matt Damon had said he would not come back and make another one unless Paul Greengrass was back and they had a good story. And mm-hmm. therefore, two or three years later, they come back and I was like, well, there must be a reason for coming back. And then it just felt like... Uh, God, know, the Jason Bourne film, that was the most generic thing. Um, and it just... It, it's, it it's took and stole from all the other ones, like things that worked, and then put them together, really. Um, but you can see why studios, when you see box office like that, you can see why studios can't help themselves and keep making more and more films. Because when you're on the height of a franchise where everyone's behind it, it's like, well, we can take another one uh, and make even more money off it, even if it's crap.
1: Yeah. I think if they had a, if they had a thought long term, if they really wanted to make this into like a James Bond length franchise, or you know, halfway there, um, with thirteen, fourteen films, you may have introduced the legacy character in the main franchise or at least had someone from the main franchise play him you know because as soon as they went with jeremy renner and nobody really knew he he wasn't really that i don't think jeremy renner's not nobody really likes jeremy renner that much as a like, from, line on
0: everything.
1: i feel so bad because i actually don't mind him as hawkeye but people don't you even like think a mission hawkeye. impossible
0: in mission impossible <laughs> right, yeah, he yeah, comes yeah, in yeah, and was, was meant won. to take over the mantle it from tom cruise
2: yeah, he was in the Mission Impossible movie that I watched, and I was like, "Oh wait, he's in two spy from." If he doesn't, if he appears in Bond, like I'm like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and
0: right. then of course, number four, the Brad Bird one did very well because they thought this could be the end of it, and Tom Cruise might jump ship and we'll hand it over to this guy, Jeremy Renner. And then it does well, and they're like, nope, it's, uh, we're going to keep it with Tom Cruise. Bye, Jeremy. And then, even in the latest one, they brought back all your major characters, um, mm. except Jeremy Renner. Because <laughs> <laughs> apparently there was some conflicting schedule or something. Um, and I was like, that guy. I mean, as much as he's in all these big films and he's doing fine for himself, yeah. like you'd be so frustrated for him. Any franchise he gets, he's always sidelined.
2: Very chance,
0: Quick question. Out of the three... Uh, uh, spies that we've looked at, so Jason Bourne, Ethan Hunt, and James Bond. Who would you like to go out in a night out with, <laughs> or like, I'd have a drink, like have a meal with, or something, or you know? Well, you started with you with. started
1: with a night out, Mark, and you know you're gonna go out with James Bond because he's gonna get you the ladies, like without a shadow of a doubt. I feel like Jason <laughs> Bourne would be like getting lost his wallet They'd be like, I like, can't remember where my wallet is. Like, fuck's <laughs> you, just right back there. Are you in your bloody amnesia? <laughs> um, <laughs>
2: I'm just going to want them to go and do like a backflip flip
0: yeah. off like a car or something. Ethan, get down from
1: the oh, bus I'm stop, like Jesus Christ, you bloody yeah. madman. Right? Yeah, that's
0: um, true. It would have to be James Bond, yeah. But I get so peeved off at James Bond, I'd be like, D- yeah. well, mm, unless he, not, he gave me two women under both arms,
1: maybe, maybe and
0: like a dry martini, shaking, not stirred. right.
1: <laughs> living up to that. Let's get into what we think is the best out of these three films. So we all uh, these three franchises. So all three of us have um, given our say as to why we think they're the best. Just before we start, has anyone changed their mind after saying their bit?
2: Not, not the slightest.
1: <laughs> Ross nope. is actually Ross is actually more inclined to talk about like it.
2: So died, like it, it, listening to the reasoning behind you 2, like I don't think either of you have a leg to stand on. I think uh, this entire subgenre owns everything that these movies. They're quintessential. They are an absolute beast of a machine. Um regardless of the problems that we've noted with them, like they are still an absolute, absolute blast. Um, have you changed um, your
0: opinion, Corey?
1: No. No, I don't think so. Um after mine's a tight
0: one. Mine, Between yours, yours, and mine, I'm not. I, the, I mean,
1: I think at the start I was maybe closer to jumping on Ross's bandwagon. He definitely made quite a good argument. Um, I just think, as a whole, and I think because they have, haven't aged the best. Um, but yeah.
2: like, but this is the point: is that they haven't aged like. Yes, you're right. Like, as a franchise, the older ones haven't aged the best. But there's a progression there where it's like, okay, well, you still have the um, Casino Royale movies and stuff that you, that, mm-hmm. you know that 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 the you, you have all these different time points that you can jump in that if you want yeah. something a bit sillier you go for the Roger Moore if you want something really dark and gritty you go for Daniel Craig if you want like a mix between the two like I said there's some quips and like st- like they're in the Sean Connery ones like there's there's something I think for all different tastes mm-hmm. whereas I think the problem is with obviously having a shorter Selection to pick from for both you guys, you don't have that spread. Like, there's not like a like the Mission Impossible movies, I guess, are pretty similar, like tonally throughout. Same with the Bourne movies; they're all pretty mm. like sort of similar tonally. Whereas you can, there's a variety in James Bond because of the sheer volume.
1: I will always go see a James Bond film. I until it's <laughs> until it's done, I will always go and see one. Um Ever since I like, probably seen Golden was probably the first one I saw. I just think. Looking at my ratings, none of them have hit the heights that Mission Impossible Fallout did, which was a nine, and The Bourne Ultimatum did, which was a nine. And I do think that was because, well, obviously Mission Impossible has more movies in the way, but as a big end, Nick, I really like Fallout for what it did. Nearly, well, kind of to finish the franchise uh, and and ultimatum, of course, also to kind of wrap up the Bourne franchise. Of course, more have came. So it's kind of hard to say because there's more of these movies coming out. Um, Not for Bourne, of course. But yeah, I would say that's my reason for picking the Bourne franchise because as a whole, I've probably rated them higher than the other ones
0: there is something to be said which is important that it has a conclusion it is the only one out of these lot that really has a firm conclusion
1: yeah.
0: um okay it's had on a tact you know it's added on a couple of films since but you have a conclusion and at the moment Mission Impossible is going there in that direction and I, I think 7 and 8 I reckon might be the last of it certainly with Tom Cruise and Ethan Hunt but um yeah there's something to be said for that and what about the the music Corey Oh, well, we talked
1: Incredible. about uh, that mo- that movie track, Extreme Ways, that they used. I reckon they used that at the end of the first one, then they were like, probably when this they were finishing good. editing the second one, they were like, oh, let's put that in again. That was class, that song. And then it's literally like, it's become such a staple of that series. And there's definitely no way they selected that beforehand. Like, that wasn't in the script where it was like, and movies Extreme Ways starts playing. <laughs> but it works really well. I was like, as like, especially at the end of the, it's the end of Ultimatum. Where he's, uh, it's perfect in Ultimatum because he's like in the water and you think he's dead and then Extreme Ways plays and then he starts moving. That probably threw up a couple of stars for me already when I was watching it. Oh, amazing. Ending films, right? That's all you need to do. End fucking movies properly because so many people don't know how to do it these days. Fucking Fast 9. What a pettishite that was. Anyway. (laughs)
0: Right, okay, we're not starting that. <laughs>
1: Apparently that is ending the franchise. It has plans to end, but we'll
0: see. Yeah, it does. You know, I think
2: it's like 10 or 11, see it. they're mm-hmm. stopping it.
1: Okay, Ross, why is James Bond your favourite?
2: In short, James Bond is the is the, is this entire genre. It's a genre on its own. It is a classic. It's an institution. It's a cinematic institution. It is. It has been around for such a long time. You can't deny it the staying power of a franchise that's been around for seven decades now um and like i said we we talked about the problems but i think there's there's something here for for everyone and um it's i it's class it's a classic
0: um my pick is mission impossible um and the reasons why first of all i think your biggest weaknesses with bond and with Bourne. With Bond, yes, I get your point, Ross, Um, variety is nice, but it's not always necessary. And some of the best films that have come out do not have variety. And variety, not just with style, but also with content. You don't know what you're walking into with a Bond film. It could be good, it could be bad, it could be full of tropes, it could be trying to pander to older films. Um, So you just, I I think it's unreliable. And I don't like the fact that there's loads of different actors, the cliches, um, not for me. It throws me out of the film. With Bourne, um, I think, I mean, you have two films at the end that haven't been good. That's obviously left a bad taste in the franchise overall, and it's weakened it. Um, also, the reveal of Jason Bourne, the, the thing that they were writing on, I think was a bit underwhelming. That's a big pro- problem, I think. And I don't know how you continue this franchise. I think it's kind of dead in the water. And you know, there's one thing to say that there's a conclusion, but at the same time, if you want this to, to really be a staple in the spy genre in Hollywood, do we need more than five films? Um, there's a question to be asked there. Whereas Mission Impossible, you have six films, they've all been consistently good, they've all been making more money, they're in the right trajectory, and the quality's getting better, the action's getting better. You can tell that they care about every film that they make. Um, They're starting to link the films together. Now you've got Rebecca Ferguson, you've got Simon Pegg, you've got Ryn Vines, Um, Mm. he's got a unit together. Yes, I think one of the problems with it is that they've never had a really good villain. And I think seven and eight can be the time to do that. And Christopher McQuarrie is now finally taking the reins. They've always had a changing director up until number five. And now he's done the last few, he's knocked them out of the park. He's an up-and-coming director. He's excellent. He's If you go back to his IMDb and see what other stuff he's been writing from years ago, the man's a genius with his writing and his directing. And I think he knows where he's going with 7 and 8, and it's going to have a really good conclusion. Uh, gimmicks I'm not so pleased with. I think they should move away from the gimmicks. Um, but overall, it's it's climbing, and I don't think the other two certainly are.
1: Yeah, to wrap up, well, I suppose we didn't have like an independent adjudicator for this one, so there's no... Uh and we all set our parts, so there's no way to say that one was better than the other. Um, What I will say is, I do think if all three of these franchises were still going, we might have had a better argument, but they're all at like different times, you know. Um, Mm. I think Bond will always, it's it's the same with Doctor Who, if you're able to change your actor, I think it can always, you can always breathe new life into it. Which is a real, uh, uh, you know, if you're making a franchise, it's a solid move. And I'm wondering if anyone will ever do that in the future, or if something like Mission Impossible will want, will do that in the future. It would be quite interesting to see a new franchise start up, maybe in, a, in the spy films. I know these Kingsman films are still continuing to go. There's the like Kingsman
2: that. movies, there's been some really good sort of offshoots. Um, mm-hmm. Our um, hidden gem, for, or under the radar for this week, is actually the 2017 movie Atomic Blonde with Charlize Theron.
1: Big fan so, of that, yeah. uh,
2: which I think it would be a fantastic one. Yeah. I mean, we haven't even talked about John Wick. I guess he's not really a spy, so to speak, but it's similar sort of vein, similar sort of themes. Yeah. Um, yeah.
1: No, hundred percent. There's definitely, um, there's definitely always a place for spy movies, and every time a new one comes out, whether it's a comedy or uh, or something else, you know, it's always one to watch. I would say. Um, yeah. Does anyone else have anything else to say before we wrap up? Mission Impossible is the best out of the three. That's all. <laughs> Again
2: like I, I mean you can't account for taste. Um, it's just I guess like I said, it's nice that we've sort of came to this sort of Mexican standoff. Um, um, I guess it's up to the listeners to let us know what they think is probably the best out of the three. Um, we all know what it is, but
1: yeah, we'll throw a t- we'll throw a poll up on on our Twitter uh, later this week and we'll see what the we'll let you guys decide what it is.
3: The espionage thriller in both film and literature has evolved significantly throughout the years, reflecting the geopolitical situations of the time, from the pre-World War II tensions of the 30s, seen in Hitchcock's 1936 film Sabotage, to Catherine Bigelow's depiction for the hunt for Osama Bin Laden in the post 9-11 landscape of 2012's Zero Dark Thirty. However, Undeniably, the genre was at its peak during the 1960s, at the height of the Cold War. It was during this time, the medium, awash with an array of literary adaptations, sort of devolved in two separate directions. On one hand, we have the more tongue in cheek, fantastical exploits of characters like Ian Fleming's James Bond, focusing on bombastic set pieces and stakes on a global scale. While for many of these have come to characterise the genre of the classic spy movies, others preferred a more realistic, grounded depiction, preferring to focus on political intrigue and subterfuge, with the likes of John le Carré, see Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, and later the work of Tom Clancy with the Jack Ryan series. These styles are melded together in Atomic Blonde, the 2017 action thriller from John Wick co-director David Leitch. Based on the 2012 graphic novel The Coldest City, the movie stars Charlize Theron, who also served as a co-producer on the picture, as MI6 spy Lorraine Bronton, sent into Berlin on the eve of the fall of the eponymous Berlin Wall, to locate and extract a list containing the names of every intelligent agent in the city. The supporting cast includes the eccentric James McAvoy as a maverick MI6 agent with his own agenda, John Goodman as a shadowy CIA overseer, and Sophia Butella as Lorraine's French counterpart slash love interest. The cast is further rounded out by consummate character actors such as Eddie Marsden, Till Schweiger, and Toby Jones. The soundtrack perfectly works to set the scene and really captures the time frame with a nice curated mix of 80s new wave pop and synth. Um, for example, in the finale scene... We it's all scored against the nineteen eighty three classic ninety nine lift balloons, which just works so well. This is additionally paired with the stunt work, which is meticulous and expertly crafted, as you would expect of someone of Leach's caliber. With one scene actually without any soundtrack in a hallway, standing shoulder to shoulder with anything found in any of Keanu's offerings, with. Double crosses and twists that will leave your head spinning right till the end, Atomic Blonde serves up just the right mix of paranoia-induced intrigue, while also maintaining the visceral action the genre has come to represent. Additionally, in a traditionally male-dominated landscape, the importance of Theron's representation cannot be understated, with the story managing to avoid pitfalls of tokenism and instead choosing to focus on well-constructed characterization and narrative. With a sequel currently in development, this is one that I highly recommend to fans of the genre looking for something
1: just a little bit different. Yeah, so that's it for this week's Film Frequency show. Um, don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and we'll be back next week with the next month of Film Frequency season two.